from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, Writer's Talk brings you a live interview recorded at The Ohio State University Bookstore with science fiction author R.A. Salvatore, hosted by OSU student Lindsay Fox. Enjoy. I'm Lindsay Fox. I have the privilege of sitting here with R.A. Salvatore, who is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the fantasy genre's most successful writers. His books have sold more than 15 million copies um, in the United States alone, and he is now on his book tour for his latest, which is the second book in the series of Neverwinter. So welcome to Writer's Talk. Good to be here. <laughs> so Good to be back in Ohio. Oh. I haven't been here in a while. When was the last time you were here? Several years ago. I was in Cincinnati and Cleveland. Perfect. I mean, so since I guess we can start on it, this is the second book in the series. What can fans and readers expect? Well, they call it the second book in the series because the publisher keeps chopping things up into trilogies <laughs> and quartets and quintets and all that. It's really like the 20-something book in the series, and I lost count a long time ago. And all I've really been doing with these characters from the very beginning is, is just following them down the road and seeing what adventure shows up next and giving the characters a logical growth and progression as we go. But... Um, so really, you know, unlike a lot of the fantasy series today, a lot of them, like The Wheel of Time and The Song of Ice and Fire, you can't pick up book 10 of The Wheel of Time and know what's going on if you haven't read the other nine. But my books, I think, are more based, the, the structure is more something like a James Bond or a Sherlock Holmes type of thing, where you can pick up almost any Dark Elf book and read it. And I've been doing that on purpose for a lot of years now. Um, but this series is a little different. This little breakup because there is a Neverwinter computer game coming um, next year, another Neverwinter Nights computer game, and so basically they wanted me to set the region up in a certain way, blow up the city, you know, I'm good at that, so, <laughs> um, and and just kind of leave, leave certain Easter eggs around for people who are going to play the computer game. Did you introduce any new characters or anything exciting oh, yeah. without giving too much away? Well, <laughs> the, the whole premise of this, this time in my main character's life is for all his life, he has been surrounded by people for all of his, since he got away from the really bad people early on in his life, he's been surrounded by people of like moral character. People that would take an arrow for him just like he would take an arrow for them. And so that's all gone now. And he finds himself alone. He's a little bit vulnerable. And he winds up now surrounded by people who really aren't quite like him. And so the question that I'm exploring here is, is he's kind of in with the wrong crowd. Are they going to bring him down, or is he going to lift them up? And I don't know the answer yet, and that's what makes it fun for me as a writer. Did you have any challenges in writing this book? I mean, considering it's been going on for so long? Yeah, I mean, always, because you've got to keep the character growing. But a, a couple of years ago, um, they, they said they wanted to take all the short stories I had written for this character and put them all together in one anthology. And so they did. It's the collected stories that are now out of, uh, of The Legend of Dreads. And when I was doing that, I got to annotate the stories. So I would do like a one-page introduction, what I was thinking, what was going on, what I was trying to get at with this, with this story. And it was an amazing experience because every time I read one of those stories, it was like a snapshot in time. And they put me right back to the frame of mind and the time and space where I was when I was writing the story. And that's when I really got hit with the epiphany about this whole series, about not just the character of Drist, but the whole series and all my other books as well. And my writing 
And that's when I realized writing isn't what I do. It's kind of who I am. And so what I do with my writing is I use the settings, the novels, the plots, the conflicts, and the characters almost as sounding boards to ask myself the questions that people ask themselves about what's the, what's the point of it all, right? right? And that's what I do. So this, char this character has become my main sounding board for 23 years now, 24 years now. And um, that's a long time. That's a long time. So in a way, it's hard because, well, how many, how many ways can you describe a, a whirling scimitars in a battle scene? So that can get a little challenging. But on the other hand, as long as I'm continuing to grow and change and ask myself different questions, so is he. Cool. Now with the game that you said that was coming out next year, mm -hmm. Are you heavily involved in the process and all of that with it? Not so much with that one, with, um, with Neverwinter, because I'm also working with a company called 38 Studios, and I've been very involved in their computer games, so it would be kind of a, a lot going on. not good if I was working <laughs> on the other one as well. But they didn't ask me to. Basically, my job was to set this region of the Forgotten Realms up for the game, and that was easy. That's what we do in the Forgotten Realms anyway. We're always aware that there are more com more game products or other novels or whatever going on, it's a shared world. So we always have to be aware of, of what other people are doing and kind of help them out and they'll help us out as we're writing, you know? I heard um, there's maybe talk of a movie? Oh, a couple of things going on with that, but not with this series. <laughs> with a different series of mine, I have a, my Demon Wars books, which I love dearly. Um, we, have a, we have a major producer and the A-list talent and the A-list writer all attached and they're, they're shopping that around so we'll see if anything happens. Nothing's, nothing's set yet, nothing's been even optioned out yet but there's a lot of, a lot of noise about that and as far as this one goes, I, I don't own these because it's a shared world, Hasbro does, but Hasbro's done really well with movies, with the Transformers and the G.I. Joe movie, they've made lots of money on movies so they're very interested in, in maybe can we do it and can we do it right? But they're also, and I appreciate this, they're also being very protective of, of what we have going on because like I said, this has been going on since 1988, these books have been coming out and they don't want to ruin that with a movie that misses the mark. So right. we'll see what happens. I'll believe it when I see it in the theaters. I mean, <laughs> I've had too many almost movies with Hollywood to get excited until I see it in the theaters. <laughs> How do you, I mean, through all your writing and everything, how do you get your creative process flowing? I mean, do you have an inspiration or? Yeah, it's, it's strange because I think being a writer first and foremost is being an observer. And so what I do is, is when I'm out there, I just pay attention to people. I'm always like paying attention to people. And they don't know I am. They think I was creepy or something, <laughs> but, but I am. I'm always looking. And I think in everything I do, in the music I hear, in the movies I see, the TV shows, the the books I read, the people I meet, all of that kind of goes into my head and I chew it up into little pieces and I rearrange it and I spit it back out, hopefully in interesting ways. And I think that's what a writer is. Um, I don't have a formal process of getting ready to write anymore it, because when, when, the, when the kids were little, when my, my children were young, I would get them off to school, have a cup of coffee and get to work because I knew I only had so many hours before the kids came home, and then I wanted to go to their street hockey games, their ice hockey games, or the horseback riding, or whatever else they were into. But now, I'm an empty nester, so it's basically I kind of walk around with a laptop all day, and when I feel like writing, I write. Uh, when I hit a very tough scene, though, 
when I'm when I'm on something, I know I really have to like go away and go there. I'll put on um, either George Winston or John Surrey or some other instrumental music, and I'll just let that kind of put me in the mood upstairs, lock the door, and just get to work. Don't do that too often. <laughs> I'm old and lazy. I like it that way. <laughs> Um, I know that, I'm sure you guys can all agree that we have, you've created a numerous amount of memorable characters. Is there any that is your favorite? I mean, that you can name on You know, I, I have to say that my favorite character is Drizzt. I, I have to admit that. I mean, I would have killed him a long time ago if it wasn't. <laughs> Just, um, I, 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 and after all these years, there were times I've been sick of him. And, but he always just keeps coming back, and he's like, he's like, a, he's like a brother, you know what I mean? And he's there for me. Um, so he's got to be my favorite character, and I'd be lying if I, if I denied it. Um, my favorite comedy character, you know, I have different characters for different things, is a, is a halfling named Oliver de Burroughs. He's in the Crimson Shadow books. And the way I describe Oliver is he's a cross between the Nago Montoya from The Princess Bride and the little French guy on the wall of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I love Oliver because you can't just tell jokes with Oliver. That's not the point. You have to write Oliver so that the people will read right past it and then about two pages later they'll go, what? And then they'll flip back and groan. And then I know I win because that's Oliver's job. But I love him. Um, he's the highway halfling and I love him. And um, So for comedy, I think Oliver even over the boulder shoulders. And that's close. But I take Oliver because when the boulder shoulders, these two dwarves were trying to put a rock up a tree. That was like the funniest thing I've ever written. I think. Um, and then for a villain, people aren't going to believe this because you know the, the readers love the Dritz books, and so they're expecting me to say Adamus and Trary. And he's certainly up there. But my favorite villain is actually a monk named Marcello Dianero from the Demon War books because he's so convinced that he's doing the right thing the moral thing, and he is just such a dirtbag. I mean, he is just the worst of the worst. And, uh, but I love him, you know? And then Trary is right there, too. I mean, he's been around since the early books in this series as well. So, many. I could go on all day. <laughs> My favorite female character is either Cadbury or Pony. Um, love them both. They're very much alike, actually, I think, of like heart. And I could just go on all day. I love them all, even the, even the little villains. I was writing a book called Mortalis, which I, I still think is the best book I've ever written. And in the first three books of Demon Wars, I've got all these monks running around. And so I needed a monk to show up in different scenes and just say certain things. He was kind of like the red shirt guy on Star Trek, you know, <laughs> except I didn't kill him because I needed him. And he would just show up and he would be the one to say, yes, master, this is happening, you know. And, and I didn't think anything of this guy till I got to Mortalis. And his name is Brother Francis. And all of a sudden we get to Brother Francis in Mortalis and he tells me this wonderful story about his entire, the end of his life, the whole cycle. And, it, and I, I was done writing it before I even realized, wow, that was really cool. And then I went back and reread that one part about him, and I was like, that was really cool. Totally unexpected. So even the minor characters kind of stay with me. And that's something I try to do, though. I try to really get into the heads of everybody who's named in the books, even if they don't even have a line, you know. <laughs> right. You know, I get into her head. She's wonderful. She's this, she's that, and Trey kills her. Okay, on to this next one. <laughs> it works. <laughs> Through all those characters and you connecting with, I mean, is there any certain one that you think you have a common trait with, or? Oh, I don't know, a little bit of all of them, which kind of scares me. But <laughs> I, I, I've always said that Dritz is who I wish I had the courage to be. 
Okay. And I, I really mean this about this guy because I think in pop culture in particular, we're, we're so conditioned to believe that the hero is the guy with the biggest gun. It's not. The hero is the guy with the biggest heart and with the principles, and he sticks to them even when it's tough, even, especially when it's tough. And that's who he is. And he's completely fallible. He makes all kinds of mistakes, but they're always mistakes of the heart. They're always mistakes because he thinks this is the best way to do it. It's never for selfish reasons or anything like that. So he's who I wish I could be, you know, yeah, but I fail often. <laughs> Talking about the characters, where do you come up with the ideas and whatnot for the characters? You know, it's funny because I don't know who a character is when I put them in the book. Um, almost all the time. I, I have no, like at the end of, I had just written The Crystal Shard, the first book, way back in 1987, and I had just finished it, and I said, you know, this was fun, I hope they'll hire me to do another one, so I needed to put a hook in. So this guy shows up in one of the ten towns, I think it was Bryn Shander, and Regis, the halfling, sees him, and, and like the blood drains from his face, he's like, oh no, and you realize right away, this guy's really bad. And there's this backstory between him and Regis. And he's got this jeweled dagger. It's like a signature dagger. And that's really all I say about him. Just a very brief description. I had no idea who it was. And that turned out to be Artemis and Trary. But as I'm writing the books, the characters are telling me their stories. I mean, even Drist wasn't in the outline or the sample chapter of The Crystal Shard, the first book. I had thought that the Forgotten Realms were these little islands called the Moonshays because when they asked me to audition for a Forgotten Realms book for, for TSR, they were the company back then doing the Dungeons and Dragons game, they sent me the only printed material they had in the Forgotten Realms and that was this one book by this guy Doug Niles. And the map just had these little islands. And so I, I sent in my, my synopsis for a book called The Tyrant of Icewind Dale and became the Crystal Shard. And Wolfgar was going to be the hero of the book. And I used one of Doug's characters just to introduce Wolfgar. And so they said to me, well, no, we don't want you on the Moonshay Isles. And I'm looking at the maps. Do you want me in the water? <laughs> and I said, no, no. So they sent me the maps of the Forgotten Realms, this vast world that they, are, they were creating. And we finally found a place where no other game designer or author was working, this little tiny strip of land. And I said, is anyone there? And they said, no. I said, that's Icewind Dale. So I created Icewind Dale up there. And so I'm at work. I was working in finance at the time, and Mary Kirchhoff, the editor, calls me up and says, got a problem. I've got to go into a, a marketing meeting and sell your book to the sales force. This is really important for the book. But you can't use Dareth, Doug's character, who was in the sample chapter. And I said, well, but good. I don't want to use Dareth. I want my own characters. And they said, she said, yeah, but I need a sidekick for Wolfgang. So I said, well, you know, I'll get back to you in about a week. Give me a week, I'll come up with someone. And she said, now you understand, I'm going into a marketing meeting. And I need a sidekick for Wolfgang. <laughs> it, was like, it was like 11.30. I said, all right, I'll skip lunch. I'll call you back right after lunch with a sidekick for Wolfgang. And she said, no, you, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm late for a marketing meeting where I'm selling your book. To the, and I need a sidekick for Wolfgang. So I thought about it for about 10 seconds. And off the top of my head, I said, a black elf. They were called black elves then. And there's a long pause, and she says, a drow? And I said, yeah, a drow elf. A drow ranger, that'll be cool. <laughs> a drow ranger. Like, yeah, that'll be cool, no one's ever done that. And there's a pause, she says, you know, Bob, there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 a drow ranger, trust me, this'll be great, we'll, we'll do a drow ranger. 
So she thought about it and she's late for her meeting and she says, all right, since it's just the sidekick character, I'm going to let you get away with it. What's his name? And off the top of my head, I said, Dritz the Warden of Dermon the Chesbernon, the ninth house of Menzo Berenzan. And she said, what? And I said, I have no idea what I just said. And she said, can you spell it? And I'm like, uh-uh, no way. And she said, what's a Menzo Berenzan? Is that a city? I said, must be. <laughs> and she said, why the houses? And I said, why nine? I have, I have no idea. And that's how he was born, just like that. So I started writing the book. And the first scene I was writing, or the next scene I was going to work on, it had Dritz running across the tundra. And he gets ambushed by some yetis before he's rescued by the dwarf. And I knew, on like page two, this isn't Wolfgar's book. This is his book. I just knew. I don't know how. I don't know why. I'd never played the character. I'd never thought of the character. You know, I'd never played him in a game, never written him in any short stories, never had any idea who this guy was before that moment. And he just took over. And that was 24 years ago. It's bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. I'm weird. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University with guest host OSU student Lindsay Fox talking with sci-fi writer R.A. Salvatore, recorded live at The Ohio State University Bookstore. You can learn more about him at our website, www.writerstalk.org. Now back to the discussion about science fiction, writing, and why R.A. Salvatore does not believe in writer's block. Now, when did your love affair with fantasy begin? I mean, college. college. Yeah, I was. I used to read a lot when I was very young. I, I used to. I had these first edition Peanuts books, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. I loved Snoopy. And I had a deal with my mom that I could bag school as long as I was getting straight A's and sit and read my books like every once in a while. So I would do that all the time. And I would read these books. And I would write my own Snoopy books and everything. And then something weird happened as I went through school. Basically, school beat the love of reading right out of me. You know, I'm in the eighth grade, and they're giving me Ethan Fromm and Silas Marner to read. And I'm like, really? And they give me Moby Dick. And I'm thinking, you know, if you take 72 chapters out of this, it's a great short story. And it's like, really? All these things that were totally irrelevant to me. You know, you get those books, and they have like, here's a sample of William Faulkner. Wasn't he great? And they give you a paragraph. And you go, wow, that was interesting. And they just... I, by the time I graduated high school, I, I had come to hate reading and writing so much. The only reading or writing I would do was to get the grade because I wanted to get into college, had to keep the grades up. So I started college as a math computer science major. But then my freshman year, 1977, for Christmas, my sister gave me this little white slipcase. You ever see those? And they got multiple books. And they had The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the old Ballantine edition. And I was mad because I wanted money. I was 19 years old. I had this very cool 69 Mercury Cougar that broke down every other day. So I needed money. Um, so I just tossed them aside. I thought nothing of it. Two months later, up in Massachusetts, we had something called the Blizzard of 78. They still talk about it. I remember it was a Monday night. I went to bed. And they said we might get a little snow. And I woke up Tuesday morning. I looked out my window. And where my car was, my car was gone. It was, and I saw this little black spot I thought was the driveway, and I freaked out. Somebody stole my car. And then we're running downstairs screaming, somebody stole my car, until I realized that was the roof of the car. That's all you could see, that and the antenna. That was it. It was gone. The, the roads were gone for a week. No school. So here I am, 19 years old, and I'm trapped in my mother's house. Oh, joy. But I wasn't trapped. I went to Middle Earth with a hobbit named Bilbo and then a hobbit named Frodo. And I went there, like, I read those books like three times that week. And it changed my life. 
I was like, and I kept thinking, why didn't somebody give me these books to read in the eighth grade instead of Silas Marner? And got back to school, changed my major to communications media. So all of my electives became literature courses. And within a year, I was reading Shakespeare. I was reading Chaucer in, La in Middle English and laughing at all the right places. I was reading Dante and getting it because I'd fallen back in love with reading and writing. But I always loved fantasy, so I stayed with it. And then when I got out of college, I basically run out of fantasy books to read. There weren't that many. Back in those days, if you went to a bookstore, they had one bay for science fiction fantasy. And it was, it was Isaac Asimov and Ben Bover and Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein. And all the science fiction guys down, down in the corner was Tolkien and then Tolkien and Terry Brooks. And then Tolkien and Terry Brooks and Stephen Donaldson. And then Tolkien and Terry Brooks and Stephen Donaldson and Michael Moorcock. And so I had basically read them all. And so my girlfriend at the, time, at the time, now my wife, said, well, why don't you just write one? You've been threatening to do that forever. And so I did. I wrote a book. <laughs> that was like 1983. Now talking about your writing and your love for writing, I know that you wrote a nonfiction book, um, a guide for writing fantasy and science fiction. Well, I didn't actually write that. It was Phil Athens wrote that. I did, Were you a part of it? I helped him. Okay. I, I, yeah, he's an editor. He doesn't know anything about writing. <laughs> no, I, um, I gave him a short story to use in it, and I gave him a forward for the book, and he bounced some ideas off me. But okay. I haven't written one of those yet, and I don't know why. I just I, I don't read them, so why should I write one? So I don't <laughs> <laughs> Since you won't read the, uh, write the book, do you have any advice for aspiring writers? Absolutely. Um, I, but the advice I tell everybody who wants to be a writer is, is all, the first advice is if you can quit, quit. And I mean that. And I'm not being facetious. If you can quit, then you're not a writer. If you're a writer, you can't quit. You're cursed. It doesn't matter what you do. You've got these stories inside you, clawing at the inside of your skin to get out. And unless you let them out, unless you tell those stories, you're never going to be happy. That's what it is to be a writer. You know, there's an old saying, I hate to write, I love to have written. And there's truth in that. Because it can be painful at times. But if you're a writer, you have no choice. You have to do it. And then on a more practical level, there are two things. Everybody writes books and then they give them to the friends and their friends seize the opportunity to beat them over the head with it and say, you should do this and this and this. And then that person loses all confidence and they start rewriting the book to meet those friends' desires. Mistake. Unless you give it to 10 people and they all tell you the same thing, then you might have a problem. But when you're writing, it has to be in here. It has to be the voice that comes from in here. There's no other way to do it. You can't say, oh, I, I've been reading these J.K. Rowling books. I know her formula. I'm going to write one. It, it doesn't work. Your voice, your pacing, all of that has to come from inside. And then on a practical level, everything you write, and this isn't just for writing books. This is writing college papers, writing anything. Read it back to yourself out loud. Out loud. And I don't mean mumble while you're just breezing through. Actually read it out loud because then you're reading it the way a reader will. Then you're going to catch all the typos, you're going to catch the awkward sentence structures, you're going to catch the paragraphs that don't quite fit, and most of all, you're going to hear the pacing of the book that you want. Have you ever had like a, a roadblock in writing? I mean... A writer's block? Yeah. Yeah, and then you tape a copy of your mortgage to the side of your computer and hit the keys. No, writer's block is lack of confidence. And if you want to make it in a business where a thousand people are trying to get your job every other day, you better not have a lack of confidence. Sit down and write. And if you can't think of what to write and you've got what you call writer's block, sit down and write anyway. Just hit the keys. Something will come up. It's easier to fix it tomorrow than not do anything today and start over. I don't believe in writer's block. 
and if you got nothing to say, then you know, go do something else with your life. I, I just, I, I just can't believe in writer's block. I can't, I can't allow myself to go there. You know, I remember when I when I got the contract for the Crystal Shard, the first book. I was working a full-time job an hour away from home. I had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and my wife was seven months pregnant. Had to get a new car because you can't put three car seats in the back of a Mustang GT. Had to get a new apartment because we didn't have enough room. And I got a phone call on July 11th, 1987. Said I got good news and I got bad news. Good news is you've won the audition. You're going to be the second Forgotten Realms author. The bad news is I need the book October 1st. And I said, no problem. And I went to work because that's what you got to do. And then I remember I was writing the Cleric Quintet. A couple of years later, we had gone away from the Dark Elf books. I was working on the Cleric Quintet, and I got a phone call from the same editor, and she said, Bob, I have good news, and I have bad news. The good news is Walden Books wants a hardcover book from you. You are going to be our first hardcover author, which is a huge deal for an author. And, but they want you to go back to the Dark Elf books, put the Cleric Quintet on hold, go back to the Dark Elf books, and I'm like, think, what could possibly be the bad news? She said, I need it in six weeks. <laughs> and that was the legacy, six weeks. Because if you want it, you go and get it. You don't whine about it, you go and get it. Then you whine. You whine to the people around you. <laughs> what has been your most challenging novel so far? Mortalis, without a doubt. When I wrote the Demon Wars series, the Demon Wars books are my Forgotten Realms, my Shannon, or my Middle Earth. It's a world I created, the one I wanted from the beginning. And I was planning in two trilogies. The first one was kind of the story of the hero, and the second one was the aftermath of the story of the hero. And I had that all planned out, but when I got to book four, which should have been the first book in the, of, in the second trilogy, I realized I needed a book in between them. So I wrote a book called Mortalis. And I wrote the book while I was watching my best friend in the world, my brother Gary, die of cancer. And he was withering away before my eyes. And so that book became a catharsis for me. And it's a book about a plague. It's a book about grief. It's a book about dealing with loss. It's all of that in a fantasy setting. And I remember when I, it was brutal. It was a brutal few months. But the writing was actually saving my sanity at that time. And I remember when I sent it to my editor, I sent it and I said, Veronica, this is either incredibly self-indulgent or really good. And I'm way too close to know which. And two weeks later, she called me back and she had been crying, which I thought was either a really good sign or a really bad sign. <laughs> and she said, don't touch a word of this book. And there was no edit. It went straight through because I was in that place. So much so that when I wrote The Ghost King a couple of years ago, I knew a couple of things had to happen in The Ghost King that really were going to tear me apart. And I had sworn I would never go back to that dark place that I was at in Mortalis. I said, I'm never going back there don't even want to think about it. But I would get up every morning and I would watch three videos on YouTube that would put me right back in that emotional place because I had to go there to do the characters justice in The Ghost King. And it was, see the things I go through for you people? <laughs> <laughs> it was really tough, but Mortalis. Good. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I really do and being here. That's all I have for you. So this is Lindsay Fox. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with guest host, OSU student, Lindsay Fox, talking with science fiction author R.A. Salvatore, recorded live at The Ohio State University Bookstore. 
You can learn more about our guests at www.writerstalk.org. Writers Talk is a production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. You can watch select Writers Talk interviews at our website, along with links to our show on YouTube and The Ohio Channel. Or go to www.ohiochannel.org or check your local public television listings for dates and times of broadcast. You can also like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash writers talk, where you'll find upcoming interviews and conversations about writing. For signed books and interview DVDs of select Writers Talk guests, visit the Writers Talk section of the Ohio State University Bookstore. Join us next time for the third annual Writers Talk Halloween special, featuring the short story Hello Slocum, written by OSU creative writing alumnus Juliet Williams and performed by students from the Black Box Theater Company from Fort Hayes School. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. <laughs>